last words are, are kind of a, an interesting uh, thing. Um, and uh, there's uh, all sorts of lists out uh, on uh, the internet about various uh, last words. Uh, Francisco Villa said, uh, don't let it end like this. Please tell them I said something profound. Uh, Blackjack Ketchum, I'll be in hell before you start breakfast. Uh, Groucho Marx, die, my dear. That's the last thing I intend to do. Uh, go on, uh, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. That was Karl Marx. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, I have a terrible headache. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, po, uh, Lord help my poor soul. Um, uh, uh, a, a famous comedian, uh, Del Close, uh, an uh, improviser, said, thank God I'm tired of being the funniest person in the room. Uh, Grover Cleveland, Cleveland said, I've tried to do the right thing. Thomas Edison said, it's beautiful over there. Um, General uh, William Erkstein um, uh, said, I didn't come here to make a speech. I came here to die uh, after he was asked if he wanted to say anything before he was hanged. Uh, Pope John Paul said, let me go to my father's house. Mother Teresa said, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Uh, General John Sedgwick said they couldn't head an elephant from this distance. This was right after he was killed by sniper. Um, and uh, uh, right before, I should say, George Bernard Shaw, dying is easy, comedy is hard. And Frank Sinatra, I'm losing. Uh, so last words are important. And we've come uh, to the last words of our, of our text. Uh, we've been studying since the 1st of January, the book of Hebrews, and today we come to the last chapter, the last text. And I, I think that this text, um, if you're interested in this at all, this last text is kind of an argument uh, for the Apostle Paul writing the book of Hebrews. That we don't have, we have, Nobody knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's kind of a secret. But I, but I think this last chapter would be an argument for the Apostle Paul because Paul liked to do the very thing that happens in this text for, for his last words of a document. He loved to kind of, at the end of it, based on everything that I've said to you, this is the difference that these truths make. This is the difference that this should make in your life. And Hebrews ends that same way. Uh, we've been talking about how for the last uh, couple of chapters, uh, this text, if you want to have your Bibles, by the way, open them up to Hebrews 13. All the texts will be on the screen for you today, too, um, if you don't want to do that. But the, the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been built on the idea of therefore, that if everything the writer of Hebrews has said is true, and we believe that it is, then therefore, this is how you live, and this is the difference that, 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 it, that it makes. And remember, the whole rest of the book of Hebrews is built on the idea of the greatness of Jesus that Jesus is greater and Jesus is better, and then a series of, their, their, of therefore statements. And so there wasn't any creative or fun way uh, to, to orient this text. We're, so we're just gonna do it verse by verse today. Um, we, we don't always preach this way, but we're just gonna go verse by verse. And these are a series of, because Jesus is greater, because Jesus is better, because our faith is in him, these are the things that are true. And we'll put them up on the screen for you. Here's the first thing. He says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Uh, th this is uh, the, the commitment to love, that when you consider the love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as, as the writer of Hebrews has laid it out, that man, Jesus gave himself up for us. He sacrificed himself for us. Today uh, is Palm Sunday, when Jesus first entered Jerusalem to go to the cross, that when you consider the sacrifice he made, the love that he showed, the grace that, that he showed, it, when we internalize that, it causes us to love one another the way that he has loved us. I want, let me illustrate it for you this way. Imagine you go to the beach with your kids or your grandkids and uh, you're there building a sandcastle with your kid and you decide to do a sandcastle with a moat around it. You build this big moat. Well, every mo everybody knows this. Every moat needs water. 
You can't have a moat without water. And so you send your kid to the, to the shore of the beach to put, take their little uh, uh, sand bucket and, and fill, up, fill it up with water and bring it back. And just as they go to the, kind of put their bucket into the water, a great big wave kind of crashes down and just crashes into that bucket, fills it up, overfills it, and they come kind of toddling over and can barely hang on to it because it's so full. That's the illustration here. That when we walk up to the shore of God's grace, and we consider the grace of Jesus, and we consider what he accomplished on that cross. His grace is like a huge wave that comes on top of us and fills our bucket and overflows our bucket. And it is that overfilled bucket that causes us as Christians, as believers in Jesus, to love one another differently, to, to, to treat one another differently. This is to, in, in view of his mercy, in view of his forgiveness, in view of his grace, it literally changes everything. It changes the way we love each other. And my heart is bent toward this idea of loving one another as brothers and sisters because this is our mission statement as a church, that we are a growing family journeying together to be more like Jesus. And all that means is we are a group of toddlers who have taken our bucket to the ocean and the crash of God's grace and God's love and God's forgiveness has, has overfilled our bucket to the point where we just love one another differently in a different way, in a more profound way. We, we, we love one another uh, in, in that way because in, in reflection of the grace of, of Jesus. And the first time you ever attended here or attended any church for that matter, you may have been kind of creeped out or whatever. You heard people refer to each other as like brother and sister. Like, is this a cult? No, it's just a group of people who've been overwhelmed by God's grace so they view each other as family. That, that's what the church is. We, we view each other as spiritual family. Healthy family, good family, but spiritual family because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse one. Here's verse two. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for, for, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, before you think, I mean, is the writer of Hebrews, is he being... Uh, illustrative here? What, what exactly is he referring to? There's actually three times in the Bible where this very thing has happened, where, where, where somebody showed hospitality to someone and it ended up being an angel. Uh, Abraham in Genesis and Gideon and Manoah in Judges. And I think the writer of Hebrews is saying, I don't think he's being illustrative here. I think he's saying exactly what he means to say, that when you practice the discipline of hospitality and, and you show hospitality to others, um, it is possible that you are actually showing hospitality to an angel of God. But even beyond that, I think there's a, a greater truth underneath of this. I think what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to see is that, man, whenever you interact with somebody, assume that God put them in your path for a reason. They may not be an actual angel. They're probably not, all right? Um, we love TV shows about this where, where everybody you know, ends up being an angel, but probably not an angel. But if you can assume that they were placed in your path for a reason. Years and years ago now, we had a, a guest speaker here. Uh, he came to teach our church about prayer. Uh, his name was Dean Troon, and I like the way he described this. It, like I said, this was years ago, and it left an impression on me. He said, every morning, I get up and I pray over my God appointments for the day. And he talked about he believed that God was gonna put people in his path throughout the day. And what I love about that is that I'm a person, you probably are too, that I kind of have like my day planned. And if somebody interrupts that day or, or somebody uh, uh, kind of throws that day off, I think it's easy for us to see them as an inconvenience, right? They, they've messed up my day. When what Dean was trying to get me to see and I'm trying to get you to see is that maybe it's not, maybe they're not an inconvenience. Maybe they're an appointment. 
right? Maybe God has placed them there for a reason, for you to encourage them, for, for you to help them, for you to show kindness to them, or vice versa. Maybe, God, maybe that was an appointment where you're going to get encouraged and, and you're going to get help. So he says, man, in view of that, we just believe Jesus operates in this way as, as we follow him, that, that he, he puts these people in our path for a very specific reason. Verse three, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves are suffering. This is the principle of suffering one with another. That, that remember, the good news, as I mentioned earlier, it creates a spiritual family. And, and the writer of Hebrews is writing to, to people who have undergone persecution. They've undergone hard, hardship. They, they grew up Jewish. They converted to Christianity. And as a result of that decision, some of them have been imprisoned. So, some of them uh, have lost their jobs and their careers. Some of them have lost their families. They're really going through it. And so Paul, write, or the writer of Hebrews, writes to everyone else, remember them as if you yourself are suffering with them because we are interconnected by this news of Jesus. We're interconnected by it. So we celebrate with those who celebrate uh, and we mourn with those who mourn. I'm somebody, I don't know about you, but um, when, I, when I come across somebody that's having a problem, I'm, I'm kind of a man through and through this way. My instinct is to want to solve their problem for them, right? Any guys with me on this, right? We like to solve problems, right? And so my, my instinct is, well, they come in to talk to me and I'm, I'm going to solve that problem. And there's a couple problems with that. One is, and there is a couple problems with that, is not every problem can be solved, Right? Some problems in that moment, sitting across the desk from someone, some problems can't be solved right, right then. Um, and the other thing is, and you're going to find this hard to believe, not everyone wants you to solve their problem. <laughs> you know what some people want? Some people want for you to throw their arm around them and say, this stinks, I'm praying for you. I, I feel bad for you. Some people just want you to mourn with them to mourn with what they're, they're, they're going through. And I, I think sometimes we go to funerals or, or we go to somebody's house that's having a hard time and we think we gotta say just the right thing. You know, sometimes the right thing to do is just to hug them and say, I'm mourning with you. I, I'm, I'm, I feel so bad for you and, I, and I'm here for you. Not every problem needs to be solved with a quippy, with a quippy Bible saying, right? Sometimes it's okay to just say, hey, I'm praying for you. I feel bad for you. I'm here for you. I'm your friend. Let, let's go through this together. Um, and that's exactly what he says. Verse four, right? he goes on to say, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. This is the idea of healthy marriage. And, and I'm not gonna talk a ton about this because following Easter, we are gonna be in a six-week series on this very topic. And the idea of this sermon series, it's called the gospel marriage, and the idea of this series is that um, uh, embedded into the gospel, there are these ideas that will absolutely change and transform every relationship that we have, um, especially our marriage. But it will transform any relationship that you have if you're, if you're not married. And, and embedded in, in, the, in the good news of Jesus are, are these ideas like uh, love and endurance and serving and generosity. And the idea of it is that that's, the gospel is not Jesus came to give you a great marriage. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came to connect you to God so that you can have God in this life and in the next, the God you were created to know and, and love. But when you, in, when you uh, internalize the gospel of what Jesus came and what Jesus did, it does change every relationship that you have. And so we're going to talk about these qualities of the good news 
uh, for six weeks after Easter. We're going to talk about these qualities and how they change and transform uh, our, our, our marriages. The New Testament is full of language like this about tying marriage to the good news of Jesus. So the Apostle Paul says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Right? He's tying marriage to the good news of Jesus. How did Jesus love the church? He sacrificed for it. He loved it. So, so he's tying these ideas together. Or he says to, to husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right? When you view how Jesus submitted to the cross and how Jesus submitted to what he was going to do through the cross, when, in view of that, we submit to one another out of that reverence to Christ. And I'm telling you, the, 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 I, the Bible is full of these things. Uh, of uh, consider him who, uh, in, view of, in view of what was coming, he endured the cross. The idea of endurance. It is a transformational principle in your relationships. The idea of enduring and persevering and loving one, one another through hard times. So I'm, if you can't tell, I'm really excited about, about this series. But this verse hits on this idea that we are going to be committed to one another in marriage in view of Jesus' commitment to the church. This doesn't come out of nowhere. He's just spent multiple chapters talking about Jesus is greater and Jesus went to the cross and Jesus was committed to the, to the mission. So he says, in view of that, it, is, it does not surprise me at all that he says, keep the marriage bed pure, right? Honor marriage, have good marriages. It doesn't surprise me at all in view of what Jesus accomplished. Marriage should be honored and marriage should be kept pure. So really this is kind of a commercial, but it, it fits right in with this text that we're going to study this idea uh, for six weeks. And if you're not married or, or you're divorced or widowed or whatever, I'm telling you, this series will change every relationship that we have. When we internalize this good news that we're going to celebrate next Sunday, when we internalize it, it changes every relationship that we have. Verse five, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? This is the principle of contentment. That uh, it's kind of an interesting thing to bring up money, right? Right as he's getting ready to close, close it out. Um, and I think he did that just because he knew preachers these days were, um, he's torturing us. Because every time I even say it, it's like, you know, the, the, whole, the whole room's like, back off preacher, you know, stop preaching sort of thing. But um, he brings up money because Jesus talked a lot about money. And Hebrews is all about Jesus. And he was concerned about it. Let me show you what Jesus said. No one can serve two masters. He will, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Real interesting thing here. Jesus says that money is competing to be our master, kind of competing with God. Um, and and um, money is competing with God. And, and Scott does a really good job of, of describing this to us almost every Sunday when, when he does the, uh, the offering time, uh, that this is an issue of confidence. 
It is where Jesus knows that the reason money is in competition with God it is where is your confidence going to be? You see this in our Hebrews text. He says, um, keep your lives free from the love of money, be content. And then he says, God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Have your confidence, God says, in me. And he knows that one of the number one kind of things that, that, that is vying for our confidence, the, the number one kind of little G God that's vying for our confidence is money. And that's, what, that's why Jesus is so concerned about it. It's not because he needs it, right? I hope you know that. He doesn't need our money. If he really, really wanted your money, just take it. It's his, right? So he doesn't need it. He could just take it if he wanted it. He doesn't need it. He's concerned about confidence. So I, I had this aha moment multiple years ago now, a long time ago now, but um, I was evaluating. Uh, in my young adult life, I really struggled with money. And I was like, what is this about? Because when I think about my life, uh, as, a little, as a littler kid with my allowance and stuff, I used to be fairly generous as a little guy. And then as I got older and I became a young adult, I had noticed that I wasn't really very generous at all. And I was like, what happened between being a kid and being a young adult? What, why, why am I struggling with this so much as, as a young adult? And I finally had this aha moment. And this isn't an excuse. I'm, I'm just kind of illustrating here. But I realized when I was 17, my mom passed away. And you know what I think happened is I think my confidence in God took a hit during that season of life. Um, that that I, I, I kind of bought into this lie that I have to take care of myself now. And so my, because my confidence tanked, my generosity tanked. And it, it took a good long while for me to build my confidence in God back up. And I would say to you, if you struggle with money and you struggle with being generous, the, the focus is not on money. Don't, don't focus on money. That's not going to get you very far. Focus on your confidence in God. Build up your confidence in God. Read through the book of Hebrews again because the book of Hebrews is all about having confidence in Jesus. So if you kind of struggle with this financial thing, it's probably not about money. It's probably like me. This was just my aha moment and if it works for you, good. But for me, it was about confidence that I need to renew my confidence in a God who loves me and sent his son to die for me and, and has offered me salvation. Verse seven, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you Consider the outcome of their way and of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you uh, as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to, uh, to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and a desire to live honorably in every way. I urge you, therefore, to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. This is the principle of leadership. That on this whole journey um, called following Jesus, God in his great grace has given us leaders. And I want you to notice the role of the leader. And every one of us has had a, a spiritual leader or leaders. But the leader's job is to speak the word of God to you. All right, That's part of the leader's job. The other leader's job is... Um, uh, that they are to be a living, breathing example of faith. They are to be a living, breathing example of somebody that recognizes that Jesus is greater. So that you can look to your leader, your, your spiritual leader, and say, this is a great leader because this is someone who lives a life as, as though Jesus is greater, that they, they really believe that. That's the leader's job. Notice the follower's job in this text. The follower's job is to make their ministry a joy and not um, a burden. And I'll, I'll tell you, for the leaders in my life, our el and I'll, I'll use our elders here at Northwest as an example of this, I'll tell you how I think through this. Am I making their ministry, as they proclaim the word of God, and as they're an example to this church, do I make their ministry a joy or a burden? Here's how I think through that. It's the caller ID test. 
When I call one of them and Steve Higgs comes up on the caller ID, are they happy or sad? Is that going to be a joy or a burden? Right? And that's just, I've always thought, I've always thought, any leader in my life, I've always thought of that. Do I pass the caller ID test? That when I'm calling the leaders in my life, are they happy to hear from me? Or are they like, I, I know that this is going to be just a major, ma- major pain. And listen, I've actually met people through the years that take joy in, that, in them being a burden. Like, oh, I know they're tired to hear from me again. You know, I know they don't want to hear from me again. It's like, you're like taking joy in being a burden. And I, 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 don't, I don't get that because this says that the ministry is so important. The word of God is so important. Being an example is so important. We want to make their ministry a joy and not a burden. And that really is my heart as a kind of co-follower with, with all of you, especially when it comes to our, our eldership. Is I just so want to make their ministry a, a joy that when they hear from me, they know it's going to be, you know, we might have to talk about some tough stuff and, and sometimes you got to talk about tough stuff, but they know by and large that I, I have a heart for them uh, and I love them. Verse nine, I told you there was no good way to do this text. <laughs> verse by verse is the only way to do this text, all right? Verse nine, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good, and I want you to underline, if you underline in your Bible, and it's, it's good for you to do that, underline this. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those uh, who do it. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. This is the principle of good teaching and good doctrine, that if we really believe, as the writer of Hebrews has said, that Jesus is greater and Jesus is better and Jesus is is kind of supreme in that way, then we want to make sure that all of our teachings that that we're following and and listening to, that they point us to Jesus and and their their good teachings. And the the writer of Hebrews, it's a really interesting thing, because I'm going to show you why it's interesting, but the writer of Hebrews goes out of his way to say that the church's teachings should be centered on grace, right? That they should, be, they, they should be centered on what was accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We ought to be teaching, every week we ought to be teaching on grace. Every week we ought to be singing about grace. We ought to be focused on grace with a laser focus. And we try to do that here. No matter what we're preaching about, at some point, you will hear the gospel of grace, of what Jesus accomplished. We take communion here every week for, the, for this exact reason, that we want, there come, there, we want there to be a point in our service where we are fully centered on the good news of grace. And I'm telling you, a lot of churches, all right, you, you attend this one, and we don't have this attitude, but a lot of churches are scared to death of grace because they think if you tell people that Jesus loves them and Jesus forgives them and they are covered by grace. They think if you tell people that, it will be sinapalooza. And they will live however they want to live and do whatever they want to do. So a lot of churches, I've been in churches like this, a lot of churches stop proclaiming grace. And instead they proclaim that like you got to work for your salvation or even beyond that, they'll just like dangle you over hell every week. You know, dangle you over hell, hoping that you'll, that, that will scare you enough and motivate you to righteousness. And biblically, it's wrong because biblically, they misunderstand grace. Grace, when it is internalized, and grace, when it is understood, 
results in more holy living, not less. Right, because we so love and appreciate the grace giver that we wanna walk in obedience. We, we love to walk in obedience. We wanna walk with Jesus because we are so incredibly moved by what he did. And so there is, it's a weird tension. It's like if I, if I lift up Jesus and I lift up grace, people are gonna live however they're gonna, want, they're gonna live. No, they're not. When you lift up Jesus and you lift up what he has done, our kind of knee-jerk reaction to this is, I love him. I love him. And I'm grateful to him. And I want to follow him. So it becomes a, and so it becomes a, I'm going to follow Jesus mindset. And I've used this illustration a lot. So if you're here every week, just uh, forgive me for this. But let me, let me illustrate this again, because I think this really works. I want you to imagine for a moment that tomorrow the state of Illinois passed a law and said there is no longer any speed limit in Illinois. Right? Right? A lot of you'd be really excited by that. I'm praying for you, all right? So there's no more speed limit in Illinois at, at all. What you would think would happen is that everybody would lose their flipping minds and they would drive as fast as they wanna drive all over the state of Illinois, all right? That's what you would think that would happen. But you know where that wouldn't happen for you anyway? Where that wouldn't happen for you is where your, schools, where, where your kids go to school. Where that wouldn't happen for you is where your wife jogs. Where that wouldn't happen for you is where your niece and nephew play at the park. What would happen is your love for those people would restrain your speeding. Because you never in a million years wouldn't want to have an accident where your kids play, or your grandkids play, or your niece and nephew play. So love would restrain your actions. And the gospel is the same way. When we proclaim the gospel of what Jesus did and we love Jesus for what he did, our love for Jesus begins to restrain us, not so we'll go to heaven and not go to hell, but because we love him and we're grateful to him and we wanna follow him. So this is why the Bible repeatedly says you have to lift up and celebrate grace. You can't lift up and celebrate anything else because it will send people down the wrong path. Love is what restrains us, love for grace. And let me show you one last, verse 11, one last uh, idea here and then we'll close out uh, the book of Hebrews. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered uh, outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, one last therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For such sacrifices, God is pleased. This is so cool, all right? That because of the work of Jesus did on the cross, because of his sacrifice, there is no longer any sacrifice left but one, right? So you no longer have to make sacrifices for your own sin, right? We're, we're, not, we're not pulling a lamb out here. It's not about to get weird, right? Be, 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 we're not going to pull a lamb out and kill a lamb or anything. We're not going to offer a sacrifice. The only sacrifice we ever do around here is occasionally we have like a, a pig roast. All right, that, that's it. There's no longer any sacrifice for sin's life. But he says there, there is one. It's the sacrifice of praise. 
That's all that you're asked to do at this point is to offer up a sacrifice of praise to our Lord and Savior for what he has done, for what he has accomplished. And we're gonna, we're gonna do a, a series uh, next winter called Levitical God. We're gonna study the book of Leviticus together and you're gonna see all the detail that the Hebrew and Jewish people had to go through in the Old Testament. All the sa- sins for stuff you do on purpose, uh, sacrifice for stuff you do accidentally, sacrifice for stuff that you didn't even know you did, right? All this stuff all this sacrifice. And he said, what Jesus did on the cross is that buried with him in that tomb was he did away with all that stuff, except for one. And that is a sacrifice of praise. That's all you're asked to do in New Testament Christianity is to praise Jesus. Say, all I'm asked to do is like show up to church and sing. No, no, no. He, he goes out of his way to say, and do not forget to do good and share with others for with such sacrifices, God is, is pleased that, that, that uh, the, the praise sacrifice goes beyond that. It's, it's about following and praising Jesus. And it's so much more simple now, isn't it? Especially when we study Leviticus this, a, a year from now that we're really gonna see this, that how much more simple Christianity is because what we're left for is a sacrifice of praise. We praise his name. With our lips, we praise his name. With our deeds, we praise his name. The way that we love one another, we praise his name. We praise, we praise, we praise. And this, I think, is the right landing spot for Hebrews, don't you? That we've just spent 12 weeks talking about how Jesus is greater and Jesus is better and Jesus is bigger and now the last kind of word, one of the last words of the book of Hebrews. So now we praise him. We lift his name high. We love others well. We walk in faith. We praise his name. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for this great book. And uh, Lord, as our worship team's coming forward and, and we're going to do some singing um, right now, we just want to, um, we want to lift your name high. Of course, with our singing but it goes beyond that. We want to lift your name high uh, with our lives, that when people see our money and when people see our marriages and when people see our relationships, they're like, um, they're different. And we're different because we praise and follow you. Help us to do that well. Um, It's uh, simple, but it's not easy. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to get off track. Would you help us to renew our desire to praise Jesus and to praise his name. It is in his name that we pray, amen. Go ahead and stand. We're gonna sing a song together. Um, Man, I'd love to pray with you. If you have a prayer request or prayer need, um, if you're interested in in hearing more about Jesus, we'd love to start a conversation with you about how he's greater um, as well. If you wanna come forward or if you just wanna catch me after church, we'd love to have a conversation with you as we sing this song.